things considered. We're in Galatians chapter 5. We have been moving through the book of Galatians for the last few months, and we're almost finished. We've only got a little bit left, Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. And this morning, we're going to look at Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12. And probably, I think, get a summary, basically, of what we've been learning for the last few months Paul is coming to the place where he's kind of summarizing, and then in chapter 6, he's going to kind of finish up by making it really practical, like how this gospel works in our relationships and interrelationships with one another. So Galatians chapter 5, let's just look there at verse 1. This is a a beautiful verse. I've always loved this verse. The, The sermon this morning is entitled, Stand Fast. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm or stand fast then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now Paul is really emphatic about this because it is our nature to actually go in a direction that causes us to rely upon ourselves rather than upon Jesus Christ. And so the first part of this verse is a command to the Galatian Christians to stand fast. The second part is also a command. But the first command is more positive. Stand fast. The second command is more negative. And don't be burdened again with this yoke of bondage. So what does it mean to stand? To stay? Okay, get on your feet. What else? What does it mean to stand in opposition to, or as you relate it to, walking? What would be the difference between the two? You're being still. You're being still. If you're standing, you're being still. You're not going anywhere. You're just you're stand. You're not actually moving. You're standing. You're holding. That was the word I was thinking about. You're motionless. You're inactive. You're free. Don't be slaves. Don't be working. Don't be serving. Don't be moving. Don't be trying to work. Don't be trying to gain. In the context, don't be trying to gain heaven by your works. Stand. Stand. Stand free. It's, it's really counterintuitive to us. Because we're raised in a world where if you want to get somewhere, if you want to do something, you've got to move. You can't just stand. And what the gospel is telling us is if you want to actually gain heaven, you have to stand. You can't move. You've actually got to stand in something that is outside of what you do, what you can accomplish. In order for us to understand the gospel, we have to go counterintuitive to everything the world tells us to do in order to gain stuff. We've got to do something that's exactly the opposite. And that's why we're here today. We're here today because the Sabbath reminds us of the exact opposite of what the world reminds us to do. The Sabbath reminds us to stop, to rest, to cease, to desist, to do nothing. How easy is that? Well, each one of us can answer that question for ourselves. How easy or difficult that is. To stop. Just to stop. For a whole day. Stop. Can we do it? Well, actually, we need, first of all, we need a command from God, and we need to learn to respect God and believe that when He commands us, it's something that's for our good. You know, parents tell us to do things all the time, right, Nilsa, Lexi, Kiera? Oh, 
scratch that. Carrie's an adult now. Parents tell us to do things. And the way that we relate to what they tell us to do has a lot to do with the way that we relate to them. What our relationship is with them has a huge impact on whether or not or how we listen to their commands. And so God is telling us here through Paul to stand still, but a lot of this is based on our relationship with God. How do we, how do we relate to God? How do we understand God? We were talking about this in Sabbath school, how that when God came to Sinai and gave his law, right after he was done giving his law, verse 18, all the people saw the thunder and the lightning and all the people backed away from God. They just backed up. And they said, Moses, you tell us anything God wants us to do, you tell us and we'll do it. But we don't want to engage with God directly. We don't, we don't want to come face to face with God. We're afraid of him. And so that was a rules-based religion. That was a rules-based experience. Just tell us what we need to do and we'll do it. And so Moses conveyed to them what God told them they needed to do, and they didn't do it. It's not possible. When, you're, when your mom or your dad or the police officer or the civil authorities or whatever have no relationship with you, there's no understanding, there's no understanding of what's behind the laws, what the laws are for, what, it all, what, it, what it's all about, how it works, the relationship between those laws and those rules and yourself and others. They're just laws and rules and you just need to obey them and there's no sense made out of them. You're not going to obey them. But when you enter into relationship with people, into relationship with parents, in relationship with, with people, like for example, that time I got pulled over by a police officer for violating a number of laws in one fell swoop. And he, instead of giving me a ticket, gave me mercy all of a sudden, I entered into a relationship with him, a relationship based on respect, based on the fact that he had been merciful to me, which caused me to feel grateful to him. And thereby, when he said to me, I don't want you to drive this car again until you get it fixed, roadworthy, I said, yes, officer, not because it was a rule, but because I had entered into a relationship with that officer. He had manifested mercy to me, and I was grateful for that mercy, and I didn't want to disobey the law because of his relationship with me and my relationship with him. That's what God wants for us. He wants to enter into relationship with us. And he knows that relationship is what motivates us to understand why it is that he wants us to do what we do. He wants us to understand why it is that he wants us to keep the Sabbath. Not because it's a law or rule, but because we need it. Because it reminds us to stand firm and rest in him, in everything he's accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. So this is counterintuitive to us. But this is where we get freedom. Freedom from what? What are we freed from? Paul is speaking to Christians who have come out of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, and he's telling them that they are going to be freed from, careful with this, from the law. They're going to be freed from believing that in order to measure up to God and to people, they need to keep the law. That they can save themselves through their obedience. Paul is telling them, you need to be freed from that because that doesn't work. You can't earn your salvation and you can't earn other people's favor through your works and through your obedience. It doesn't work that way. So how do we do this? How how do we stand still? 
How, how can we stand free from our natural and acquired inclinations to measure up to standards imposed on us by others, by, by parents, by, by family members, by the church, by, by society at large, even by ourselves? How can we be free from all of that, and how can we stand in liberty? Well, it's only by trusting Christ. That's the only way. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to what God wants to do, and that salvation is he wants to restore us to the image in which we are created, and that image is love. When it comes to God restoring us to loving relationships, we have to trust completely in the doing and dying of Jesus. Jesus came to this world, and he lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. There was nothing that he didn't do perfectly. Now, the reason why he did that was not primarily to show us how to do it. (laughs) That works. I mean, it's cool to see that this was a man who actually showed us how to love people. But the primary reason he did that was to give that obedience to us as a gift. To tell us in all of our failures that this is for you, that you have this as yours, that everything I've accomplished I've given to you because that's actually what it takes to be reconciled to God and you can't do it and so I'm doing it for you. And I'm giving it to you as a gift. It's kind of like someone, we're, we're sick for the week and someone goes in to our work and works for us eight hours a day, five days a week. They work for us because we can't do it. They fulfill our obligations to get those hours in. And at the end of the week, they give us the paycheck. They said, I did this for you because you couldn't do it. So I did it for you. It's yours. And your boss is really pleased with you because of the good work that I did in your behalf. (laughs) I did a really good job. Jesus Christ has met the standard, the requirements that are necessary for us to get paid salvation. (laughs) Because we couldn't do it, so he did it for us. Not only that, but Jesus also received in our behalf the consequences of our disobedience. Because disobedience has consequences. You can't just pretend it doesn't happen. If my daughter takes my car, which would be really hard for her to do right now because, you know, no one gets my car. But if she did actually was able to get my car and, and drive it somewhere and she got in an accident and she couldn't cover the cost of that accident. My insurance company would cover the cost, but there's a, there's a um, what's that called? Deductible. And she couldn't cover that. I have one of two choices. I either tell her that she has to cover it and make her pay for it, or I forgive her. If I forgive her, what does that mean? I pay the deductible. The deductible doesn't just go away. It doesn't just disappear, right? If she doesn't pay it, I have to pay it. And that's what God has done for us. He's paid the consequences of our penalty, of our wreck, if you will, our car wreck our life wreck, our sin wreck. He's paid those consequences. And this is the only way we can stand free. We can stand free when we see that Jesus Christ has perfectly fulfilled the requirements that were needed for us to get our paycheck, our salvation paycheck, and he's paid the consequences of our train wreck, of our sin wreck. He's taken care of everything for us. These Galatians were being deceived into thinking that they needed to earn this, that they needed to do something. They had to get up off their sickbed and get into work. And and Paul was saying to them, no, no, no. That's been taken care of by Jesus Christ. You need to stand still. Because 
And here's the point, because when you know that Jesus is taking care of you in this area, it motivates you. Like if you have a friend that goes in and works for you and then hands you the paycheck, how do you feel toward that friend? It's like, wow, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in in prayer. He is our friend. And this is the message that Paul is trying to deliver to the Galatians because they've been deceived into thinking, somehow misled into thinking that it's up to them. And that's legalism. It's the yoke of slavery. It's the bondage. It's the yoke that, that leads us to depend on our performance, that leads us to depend on us instead of on grace. So Paul is telling the Galatians, you know, you took the yoke of Christ, which is the yoke of total God dependence, dependence on everything he's done. You took that. It brought you peace. It brought you hope. It brought you joy. It brought, insurance, brought you insurance, assurance. But then these Judaizers came in and they tried to start getting you back into this old way of thinking, the way the world thinks, that if you want to get something, you've got to earn it for yourselves. And that just brought guilt and condemnation. Now, verse 2, he says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, don't misunderstand this. Paul's not talking about the issue of circumcision per se. In fact, he even had Timothy circumcised at one point. What he's saying here is that circumcision represents something. These Judaizers were telling people that circumcision was part of the law and that if you didn't get circumcised, you couldn't be saved. And Paul was saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Being circumcised is not how you're saved. (laughs) You're not saved by doing the law. If you buy into the idea that in order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to do that part of the law, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to be into the whole law because circumcision is just one part of the whole. And the whole law is one. It's one thing. The Torah is what he was referring to. And in order to be saved by the law, you have to be impeccably obedient to the law. (laughs) You can't miss a thing. And guess what? We can't do that. We failed, failed, failed. So he's, he's speaking here against the principle of being saved through obedience to the law. We don't believe that. No generation of people has ever been offered the package of being being saved through obedience to the law. Even in the Old Testament, God's people were never saved through obedience to the law. It failed miserably at Sinai. And you can read Hebrews 11. You can see that all of God's people in the Old Testament were saved by faith in the Lamb to come, as we're saved by faith in the Lamb that has come. Verse 3. Again, I declare to you and to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law because the law is a unit. And therefore, if you're thinking of one way of being obedient, one way of being saved through obedience, you've got to include everything in that, the whole package. And there's no way you can live up to all of that. That's the point. Verse 4. So you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have, you've turned your back on Christ. That, that word alienate means to turn your back on someone. You have fallen away from grace. You see, it's not enough for us to simply know the law. It's not enough to keep part of the law. We have to keep all the law. And if we do that, then we're not saved by grace. We're either saved by the law or we're saved by grace. That's what Paul says in Romans eleven six. He says, if it's by grace, then it's no more of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it's of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more works. It's either one or the other. If you're saved by grace, you're not saved by works. Works is just out of the picture because grace is unmerited favor. has nothing to do with work. But if you're saved by works, grace is gone. You can't marry the two. You can't say, well, I'm partly saved by grace, but I'm also partly saved by works. That's what Paul's saying in, in Romans 11, verse 6. He's saying it's either one or the other. And we here in this church this morning, right now, are choosing to be saved by grace. We're choosing to be saved by grace, not by works. And you say, well, wait a minute, we're we're here, we're observing the Sabbath day. This is the fourth commandment of of the Bible, right? That's why we're here today, isn't it? Because we believe in observing the Sabbath. Does that mean we're not saved by grace? Because we're keeping the commandment of God, does that mean we're not saved by grace? Now, that's a question we have to answer individually and personally. Because we are in danger of believing that because we're keeping the Sabbath, there's some kind of merit in that. There's, 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 a, there's a, a, a mindset that we can imbibe, that we can take a hold of, it that makes us think that because we're keeping the Sabbath, we're better than all those Sunday keepers out there. They're all mowing their lawns, and they're all watching their sports, the Olympics, I think if that's still on, or whatever they're doing today. But we're not. We're in church. We're better than them. And as soon as we think that way, we are, we've already shifted from grace to works. We've, as soon as we start judging other people, we've already shifted from saved by God's grace to saved by our obedience to the law. We've already shifted. If indeed we are saved by grace, here we stand, and we come in contact with people who aren't keeping the Sabbath, we remember that we're saved by grace. That's what we remember. That's all we think about. It just, it just saturates our being. And we're just gracious to other people because we're saved by grace. Do you see how that works? We're here because we're saved by grace. And that grace has captured our hearts. And that grace causes us to want to have a relationship with God. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like God's made an appointment with us and he wants to meet us in this building today. And he wants to talk with us, and he wants us to praise him, and he wants to spend time with us, and he wants to hear our prayers. And because we've, our hearts have been so warmed by him, we want to meet with him, and we want to hang out with him, and we want to talk with him. We have this relationship with God where we're thinking in our minds, I can't just leave him to be by himself in that empty building, and so we all came here to hang out with him. And we wish that our neighbors and our friends could benefit from being here too today. We wish they could. We wish that, that Bruce and Carolyn Williams right over here would just come right into the church and just hang out with us, don't we? We just wish that. We're not here because we're burdened with some kind of, oh, I got to go to church because, you know, there's... No, we're here because we want to pray, we want to sing, we want to fellowship, we want to worship, we want to hang out. We want our kids to hang out with us and to learn about Jesus and to grow in an understanding of who God is. That's why we're here. We're not criticizing or negative or critical toward others. We're, we're wishing they could be here with us today and every day. So Paul here is emphasizing the importance of relationship in between the lines. That's, that's his point. So as he continues here in Galatians chapter 5, let me just find my place here. Galatians 5 verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await the faith 
excuse me, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. So when we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us. We have become born-again Christians. Paul says in Romans 8, the first thing the Holy Spirit does is convince us that we are God's children. We're the children of God. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now, if we are children, Romans chapter 8, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. So, so this brings peace. We have peace in our hearts that comes from Jesus Christ and crucified. And even though we stand justified before God as believers, we still have this sinful nature. Have you noticed that? We still have this selfishness in our hearts. It's still there. And that's why salvation isn't a one-time done deal. Salvation involves three aspects. The first aspect that I want you to look at here is justification. Justification is a theological term that could be simplified and defined this way. I stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. All of my past sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's justification. We have that by faith. So we stand perfect in Christ. Do I believe in perfection? Absolutely. In Jesus. I believe in perfection in Jesus. If someone asks me, can you be perfect? I say, absolutely. In Jesus, I'm perfect. That's how he sees me. He sees me as perfect. Verily, verily, John 5, 24, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes them and believes him whom sent me has eternal life and he will not be judged, but he has crossed over from death to life. That's the promise of God. You've just crossed over from death to life. You will not be judged. You have eternal life. Praise God. Praise God. Then we have the second element of salvation, which we call or identify as sanctification. This is an ongoing process. This is this daily experience that the Christian has. Through the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit, and the flesh is conquered. You know how that is. You're, you're wrestling with things in your life. God shows things to you or, or you make decisions that you later regret and the Holy Spirit convicts you of those decisions and, and by God's power you take a hold of things and you throw them out of your life. You get rid of them. You kick them out the door. You throw them in the garbage can. You refuse to have anything to do with them anymore. That's not you doing that. That's God doing that. <laughs> you never would have felt that way about it. You went out and got it in the first place. <laughs> You're the one that put it in your house or put it in your fridge or put it in your mouth or put it before your eyes. But God, somehow through his spirit, caused you to have a different way of looking at this. He empowered you to actually want to distance yourself from it. That's sanctification. That's what God is working out in your life. And it's a process. We grow in that. We develop in that. So the Spirit leads us, Galatians 5.16. So I say this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the, a battle that's taking place there. And we'll talk about more, more about this in our next session. So, so this is sanctification. It's, the, it's the, the progress that we make in Christian growth. And then we have the third aspect of salvation, and that is glorification. That's the ultimate element of transformation. And this is not going to take place until Christ comes. We're actually going to be glorified. Everything about us is going to change. We're hardly going to recognize each other anymore. We're going to know us because of our personalities, but the way we look, the way we appear is going to be totally different because we're going to be perfect. So I won't be able to recognize Paul or Dan or Paul or Sue because they're wearing glasses. 
because they won't be wearing glasses. Like, you look different without glasses. Yeah. We're not going to have wrinkles anymore. Our hair is going to be dark or light, and we're going to have a full head of hair. Our stature is going to be <laughs> it's going to be bigger. We're going to be bigger and stronger and, and symmetrical. Things are going to kind of level out and feel, oh, we're going to feel healthy. We're going to feel so healthy and vibrant. We're not even going to want to sleep. The Bible says we're going to walk and not be weary. We're going to run and not faint. I've never liked the idea of going to bed at night. I guess somewhere inside me, I'm not supposed to sleep. That's the eternal image that God gave me that he's trying to restore, right? Right now I need to sleep, but someday I won't. I won't need that. This is the final phase. Now, the reason why it's so important to understand this final phase is because we know, don't we? We know there's nothing we can do to transform our bodies into that immortality. And yet, and yet, we believe that there's something we can do to procure the other phases at times. And the reason why I think this third phase is so important is because God is telling us that glorification is just as much my work as sanctification is my work and justification is my work. And if you think you can contribute to glorification, excuse me, if you think you contribute to contribute to justification or sanctification, remember you can't contribute to glorification and back up and realize it's the same with justification and sanctification. Dan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's our body. Yes. Is our character. Is our, is, our, is our knowledge. And the Bible says, Paul says, we'll be gr- learning of the mystery of God for all eternity. We'll just grow more and more in our understanding of God's goodness, of God's love, of God's grace. But our bodies are changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And our nature. So, I just want to summarize these three points in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 9, and 10. Think about this. So, verse 9 and right now I'm thinking about the Myers, the loss they have had last just this morning, early this morning, of, of Randy's father-in-law, Martyr's father. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But we have the sentence of death in ourselves. We have the sentence of death in ourselves. Two things, absolutely irrevocable, unchangeable. Taxes and death. Taxes and death, okay? You have to pay taxes, and we're all going to die. We have the sentence of death in ourselves. And the sentence of death comes because of sin. But notice this. We have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver and in whom we trust that he will yet deliver. Do you see what Paul has done right there? He's talked about death, the ultimate consequence of sin, and he said, but we have someone who has delivered us, justification, who yet delivers us, sanctification, 
And who will yet deliver us glorification? He's just outlined the three phases of salvation in these two verses. Past, present, and future. And who's the one that does the delivering? Here it is. I'm going to read the verse again. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. That's the whole point of his message to the Galatians. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in God. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in God. Trust entirely in God. He's delivered, he will deliver, and he yet will deliver. He delivered, he does deliver, and he will yet deliver. So the Bible says that God has delivered, he will deliver, he is delivering, and he will yet deliver. So in Galatians 5, 6, Paul is saying that in Christ, circumcision doesn't avail anything. Uncircumcision doesn't get you anything. In Christ, verse 6, Galatians 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's the only thing that counts. Faith expressing itself through love. Salvation is entirely a free gift. Whether this morning, um, Judy shared a hymn with us that really touched my heart. And I want to close with this hymn, the words of this hymn, because it was so powerful to me. And it's the way it is, you know, there are times when, I know this hymn, you know, I've sung it before, etc. But there are times in your experience when there are certain words, when there are certain verses, when there are certain songs that come home to your heart and really hit home. And this really hit home for me this morning. At first I prayed for light. Could I but see the way? How gladly, swiftly would I walk to everlasting day. And next I prayed for strength that I might tread the road with firm, unfaltering feet and win the heaven's serene abode. And then I asked for faith. Could I but trust my God? I'd live unfolded in his peace, enfolded in his peace, though foes were all abroad. But now I pray for love, deep love to God and man, a living love that will not fail however dark his plan. And light and strength and faith are opening everywhere. God waited patiently until I prayed the larger prayer. Paul says the essence of what he wants for us in the Christian experience is not light and faith. It's not even strength It's not intellectual knowledge, understanding doctrines. The thing that God wants for us, according to Paul, is love. And when we are filled with this love, then light and faith and strength and doctrinal understanding, all that stuff follows. It all comes when we're filled with love. What the Judaizers were doing and what we tend to do as believers, is we tend to let all of the doctrines and the faith and the strength and the works and all the other things that we do obscure our lack of love, replace our lack of love. And God is, through Paul, trying to get all that stuff out of the way. He's saying, I don't care if you're circumcised. I don't care if you keep all the law. I don't care how much prophecy you know. I don't care about all that doctrine. I don't care about all the stuff you're doing. I don't care if you give your body to be burned. I don't care if you give all your goods to the poor. If you don't have love, all that stuff is meaningless. 
we need to get right back to square one. And square one is love. And love is not something you can manufacture. Love is not something you can conjure up. You know you don't love people. You know that. And so you are barren. You are completely void of love. And God says, I can put that love in your hearts. I can do that through Jesus Christ. If you will focus on me and what I've done for you, if you'll focus on the fact that I've stepped in while you were unable, and I've worked that week for you, I've earned that pay for you, (laughs) and I didn't do it for me, I did it for you. I'm handing you the paycheck, you, home, sick, unable to get out of bed, I'm giving it to you. You'll get that picture in your heart of my love, then everything else will come in consequence of that. My image will be restored in you. And you will be the people that God had designed that you would be. Christians. People who are like Jesus. How many of us this morning want to say yes to that? Praise God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for the book of Galatians. Thank you as we've moved through this book that Paul again and again refers us to the cross, to Christ, to the the gospel. Thank you that he admonishes us in Galatians 5 to stand fast and in a sense to stand still, to be motionless, to be unmoving, to, to separate ourselves from actions and works that would cause us to feel that we can earn our own salvation but to put all of our faith and trust in what Christ has accomplished for us, to recognize our sickness and our inability to do the work and to receive from Christ the gift, the reward that he has purchased for us as he did our work in our behalf. Thank you for his doing and dying. Thank you for all he's accomplished for us, Father. May it be ours and may we be free from the guilt and the shame, from the burden that we feel at times because we don't measure up, maybe we be free from that, and may we not place on others that same guilt, that same burden that we at times feel inclined to to hold. Maybe we we be free from it in ourselves, and therefore may we with with restrain from applying it to others. May we love others freely as you've loved us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.